Good morning, everybody. I'm Tyler Johnson. We are going to finish our series today in 1 Kings. So 1 Kings 11 and 12. Not yet. I'll tell you later. 1 Kings 11 and 12. If you have a Bible, open it. Uh, Paul Artino, the lead pastor here, will continue to advise us to bring hard copies of the Bible. And I want to say the same thing. There is really something when you admit in anything that you're not that smart and you're dumb and you're willing to look stupid, you can learn your Bible. When somebody gets up here and they go, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and you're like, I don't think I've ever heard that word, nor could I pronounce it. But you go to a table of contents, you learn where it is, and you begin to flip around the Bible. It's really helpful, the tactile nature of the Bible. So no critique, but if you're using your phone, 1 Kings 11 and 12. So we're in the Old Testament, which is the back left part of your Bible, and it's kind of actually early in the New Testament because the New Testament's pretty big. I'm sorry, early in the Old Testament because the Old Testament's big. But here's the other truth about the Bible. It can be really hard for everyday people to understand, or you begin to engage it and you feel like, this just sounds like another language to me, and even more so in the Old Testament is the Old Testament were really removed from culturally. It's hard to understand exactly what's going on. It's hard to understand why God's saying the things he is. So every time I engage the Old Testament, that's a gross exaggeration. Many times when I engage the Old Testament, I try to remind myself of this passage that the Apostle Paul writes to us in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verse 4. He's speaking of the Old Testament. He says this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. The word hope is a really powerful, really powerful word. Um, and the truth is if we stop and allow that word to resonate with us, many of us feel right now hopeless. Maybe at a small level, maybe at a great level. And so one thing I want you to see about the scriptures is that they are written for us. That's an incredibly personal reality. Is that so through the encouragement they might provide, we might have hope. The very purpose of the Bible was written for you and written for me, was written for we, for us. God wrote the scriptures that we might have hope. And here's the reality of who we are. We have real needs. Even if you're a person in this room that doesn't like to acknowledge that and would never say it, the truth is we have needs. We have physical needs. We have spiritual needs. We have emotional needs. And we live in times that are very complex and very stressful, right? The times we live in are confusing. They're complex. They're stressful, there's this kind of moral dissolution, like things just morally seem to be just cr crumbling all around us, and it creates this fear and concern within us and what's going around among us. And I think all of us know, even on the backside of a midterm election, that no amount of goodwill, no amount of intelligence seems to even make a dent in how huge the problems that are in front of us are. And the truth is, we can say that about our culture and our society, but many of us feel that in our own homes, in our own workplaces. And truth is, we lay down 
in bed and on the pillow and our own problems seem not mounting. We have our own internal wars and family wars, let alone wars in the world and immorality and corruption and poverty. And we just go, what in the world is ultimately going to make a dent in this? Well, the scriptures are written to us that would get cynical and lack hope, that we might find endurance and hope. That's the power of God's word. That's the power of what we call the Bible and how God personally speaks to us. Is Here's the truth before I pray. The scriptures are incredibly relevant. Even when we feel like they're not, the times we disregard them and we look away, they're unbelievably powerful. The scriptures are perfect. The scriptures are pure. God's word is reality. And it's written and given, his word is given to us for our hope. So let's pray for that um, before we get into this passage. God, I pray uh, this truth you tell us in your word, that your word, when it comes out, will not return void, but that you will do all that you have purposed for it. God, you have purposes for your word amongst us as Redemption Gilbert this morning. You have purposes in your word for each individual in this room. I pray now that your Holy Spirit would begin to speak personally to every person in this room, no matter where they sit, stand in the midst of their confusion, you'd speak to them. And God, I pray that you'd speak to us as well. And God, that you'd give us hope, courage, and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we start in 1 Kings 11 and 12, these are two chapters. Um, we're going to teach through them, but we're not going to necessarily, we don't have the time to go through them verse by verse. But it really concentrates on this third king in the We Want a King series, Solomon, who's the son of David. And we just looked last week that Solomon was the one given the responsibility to build the first temple this first space of incredible worship for the nation of Israel, this people God called for his own possession so that the whole world, all the other nations, would know that Yahweh is the one true God. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. That's why Israel was chosen, is that through this nation, the world would know. Well, Solomon is given the responsibility to build the temple. And the interesting part of this is that his father, David, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, actually wanted to build God a temple. God said to David, no, you're not going to build it, but your son will build the temple. So in 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds this temple for God and establishes these amazing blessings to the people of God, recognizing God's sovereignty, God's faithfulness to his word, how he does what he says, and how he is the means of blessing to the nation and then ultimately to the world. He says these incredible things. And now we come in and start chapter 11, and it says, King Solomon, however, verse 1, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. Solomon's one of them, the Israelites. God said, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. 
So how in the world does Solomon go from this man who builds the temple, who in his humility doesn't ask for stuff, but asks for wisdom? God, because of his humility and because of his sense to ask for wisdom rather than more stuff, gives him wisdom and gives him kingship and allows him to build the temple. His wisdom is so significant that in chapter 10, it shows that leaders of the world were coming to sit at his feet to learn with him. In chapter 10, it's this queen of Sheba. But something happens between his humility and obedience to ask for something like wisdom, to do what God said, to now so blatantly, so obviously do what God told him not to do. Now, it's easy at times like this to take people like Solomon in the Bible and just go, what a clown. Like, what a fool. God tells you that clearly and you're going to do the opposite? And you remove him from his humanness. The truth is, obedience in the world doesn't always feel like it's this straight, simple line. There's a lot of things in the world that get really confusing. Our responsibilities, our authorities, how we practice the responsibilities and authorities we've been given or the roles that we've been given, it gets very confusing. And then there's this reality, the longer you live, where you're like, there feels like there's a fundamental current of the world that feels like the strongest force in the world that's set up against me doing what God wants, right? Thoughts pop into our heads, situations present themselves. It is very hard to just simply be obedient. So I'm going to turn into professor mode here for just a second, and I'm going to ask you to turn into students. So I'm putting on my glasses for a moment and opening a book. You take on the responsibility to be a student. And even if you take notes in your phone or you want to write this down, this framework I've said um, probably four times before on this stage, and I want to say it because I think it's incredibly important to live in the real world and to understand the power and influence of sin. That which I just said is this current that feels like it's moving against us in the world all the time. So there are four dimensions of sin that the Bible talks about. There's the cosmic, the societal, the individual, and ecclesial. So in 1 John chapter 2, there's this statement where John the author writes, do not love the world or the things of the world. And you kind of got to go, what does he mean by that? And then he mentions what many writers, commentators, teachers of the Bible have called the unholy trinity, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So when you get into these four dynamics, the cosmic view is a view that there's a reality outside of us that's influencing everything of good and evil. That's of God and what the Bible calls the enemy or other names for the enemy are Satan, is that ultimately an angel called Lucifer becomes Satan, the devil, because he disobeys God's word. He disregards and dismisses God's word and in turn falls and fracture happens through the whole entire world. That same devil comes to Adam and Eve in the garden and entices them with an offer that is a lie. Here's something very simple to understand the cosmic dimension of sin. Satan is a liar. 
God is a truth teller. An even more accurate way to say it would be God is truth. Satan is a liar. Lies bring about darkness and death, the Bible says. Truth brings about light and liberation. The word liberation means freedom. So there is, when we talk about there is a current in the world that's moving all the time that's lying to us. And oftentimes these currents of the world that are lying to us most of the time, not just a lot of the time, most of the time doesn't say to you, this is a lie. It actually, in fact, offers you benefits. Right? And so now the world takes this on. This is society, takes this reality on and is communicating lies to us all the time that many of us are receiving unconsciously all the time. And this is what God was warning Solomon about of marrying other God, like other women who worship other gods is that you will unknowingly be captured by these and buy into and apply lies which will lead to the destruction of you, your family, and the nation that you're leading. So there's a cosmic reality, there's a societal reality. Now what I want you to see of why sin gets complicated is at this moment, you're going, this is a lot of stuff that's happening to us unconsciously if we don't intentionally try to have eyes that are conscious of God's word. That is key through this whole section. God's word is truth. God is truth. So then individuals hear that stuff when we apply a big word appropriate, take on those lies and put them into practice. That's when sin is birthed. But the enticement of those lies is what the Bible calls flesh. Flesh in the Bible, and you'd see this in the Apostle Paul, isn't that we live in physical bodies. Like it isn't literal flesh. The flesh communicates the sin nature within us that is enticed by the lies the world and the enemy is communicating. And when we put those into practice, that gives birth to sin, which ruins the world. The last point of the dimension of sin, the word ecclesial comes from this word ecclesia, which means called out ones. So the nation of Israel was called out and the church was called out and sin exists in the called out ones. So can I get an amen? Sin exists in the church. Amen? Amen. This is what gets so confusing to people and what's so wrong about the church setting itself up as above the rest of the world rather than the church setting itself up as the ones who recognize the reality of sin and that it exists in us. So the Apostle Paul, which many people may say is one of the most biblically informed guys on the planet because he wrote the majority of the New Testament, right? And holy guys at the end of his life says, Christ died for sinners of whom I am the worst. He has this incredible self-recognition of the reality of sin and how it's implanted itself in him. That's the power of the church. Not that we've got it all wired, but that we recognize our reality of sin and we know who to look to in God. This reality is what captures Solomon how he moves from building a place of worship into having many wives. Now, let me just say this as I read this passage again. When you read these first five to six verses in chapter 11, which speaks about Solomon's disregard for what God told him to do, and he does the opposite, it seems pretty obvious that he's continuing to worship in the temple he built. 
Do, do you guys get the disorientation of that? So all of the ways God set up worship in his temple, Solomon builds it. It's one of his crowning achievements. He continues to worship God in the, worship God in the midst of the temple while his life is doing everything counter to what God says. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidians, Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites. The language is like explicitly, clearly, unquestionably told him, don't intermarry with them. For what reason? Because they will surely turn your hearts after their God, after lies. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Now listen to this. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. Duh! Right? 700? And it says love. This word love is so interesting. It's like, I have a hard enough time loving one woman. 700 women and 300 concubines, which is just like women that served him in many ways, but certainly sexually. And you're like, what? How is that even possible? And why would you begin to do that? Like how many nights on the town did Solomon have to meet 700, not just meet 700 women. If he made 700 of them wives, how many did he meet and talk to? There's a bunch of people in here like, I knew the Bible wasn't true because that's impossible, right? Like you can't possibly meet that many women. Well, here's the reality. There's something more going on here. Solomon's given the mantle to lead the nation of Israel. And in this, he starts getting strategic and he's thinking, okay, my job to lead the nation of Israel, which is the people of God who've now become a nation. I mean, it's God's nation. I know because I was told to build a temple and I did it and God showed favor and blessing to us as a people, even when he led us out of Egypt all the way through my father David to now I am leading God's people, but I am now functionally the king of this nation. I got to get strategic. So he starts thinking, not just I fall in love with seven hundred women, but he starts thinking like, man, how do I build our protection? How do I build our platform? Well, in the ancient Near East of these times, the ways in which you could develop alliance with other nations was marry the king's daughters. Align yourself in a family way. That would begin to protect the nation of Israel from surrounding warfare because you have alliances with them. And then in the end, you'd also be able to build your platform because he's now the man who's married this. He gains a lot of power, which in his mind, he's thinking, I'm building the influence and the protection of the nation of Israel. And yet God's going, and you're doing that in ways contrary to what I told you to do. The word of God is incredibly powerful. Now you can believe this or not believe this, but there is a grain of the universe that moves according to the word of God. The scriptures tell us that God is the one who spoke the whole world into existence. God's the one who formed you and I together, knit us together in our mother's womb through his word. 
He's the one that not only spoke the world into existence and formed you and I together in our mother's womb by his word, but he's the one who actually upholds all that he created by his word. It's staying together and holding together. Hebrews 1 chapter 3 tells us that it's upheld by his powerful word. So if there is a grain of the universe moving, it's moving according to God's character and God's word at the core. So this moment when Solomon begins to disregard, dismiss, not pay attention and apply God's word, he's dismissing and disregarding reality, truth. Now, then you have all these moments where things begin to fracture. And the question is leveled of like, who is God? And what kind of word is his word? Well, we just sang this song about God, you're so good, the goodness of God. So I want to create an illustration for you that shows how the heart of the father can come out in love for his children as God's word does in two different ways. So last night, my wife has taken Harmony, my youngest daughter, to Tucson because she started playing club soccer, and she has to go to Tucson. Now, the truth is, when I, Paul asked me to teach this weekend, I looked at the calendar. When I looked at our family calendar that we have in the kitchen, it said Harmony's tournament in Tucson. I said, Paul, I'll definitely teach because I do not want to go to that place. Haley, you're going to Tucson. So Haley's in Tucson. I'm here teaching, and... Last night, the boys leave, and I have one child at home, which is my daughter, Lucy. So I say, hey, do you want me to go pick up food, or do you want to go out on a date? She gets this big smile, and she's like, I want to go out on a date. So we drive out just down the road from our house. There's this place called Parlay in Chandler, and we show up at Parlay in Chandler. We put the menu in front of her. She wants to order calamari as an appetizer, a shrimp Caesar salad, and then I go, hold on, you may want to get dessert. So we order that the guy comes over as we're eating he goes are you guys going to think about eating desserts and I say Lucy you may want to leave room for a dessert because there may be a good dessert and he goes there is one of the most unbelievable desserts I've ever had at this place it's a brown butter cake with fruit puree and ice cream on top now my daughter hasn't been around long enough but I'm like brown butter Fruit, sugar, puree, and ice cream. Yeah, we'll do that. So I'm like, Lucy, trust me. Leave room for dessert. She gets kind of a smile on her face. So when the dessert comes and she takes her first bite, I take a picture to send it to her mom to say, this is why you should go out with me, right? (laughs) Lucy had taken a bite of this, and she's like, this dad is unbelievable. Now, I had just asked her, like, if you could have any meal on earth, Right now, what would it be? And she went right to my mom. It'd be, it wouldn't be going out. It'd be grandma's. And then when she got to dessert, peach cobbler. So she says to me, this is like maybe better than grandma's peach cobbler. I mean, it was really good, right? And this thought came to me, not because I'm so holy, but because I was teaching this morning and I needed an illustration. So this thought came to me from Psalm 119 about the word of God. And it says this, how sweet are your words to my taste? sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the moment me as a good dad stops is like, I want you to experience pleasure through sweetness in your mouth. So trust 
dad's words. Leave room for dessert. She does it. She's like, dad, thanks. That was amazing. I get like one bite of this thing. That's big. She had already eaten calamari, a shrimp Caesar salad, and she's tiny. And she crushes this dessert. That then reminded me of when I was a kid and went out with my family. And I show up as a little boy at a table. And I don't know if Cholula existed at the time, but we lived in Colorado and Cholula's not as big as Colorado anyways. But there was this thing, a smaller bottle on the table called Tabasco sauce. And me as a little kid just go, goes, whatever that is, it's good because it's red. And all I knew is like red jelly ranches are good. Red jelly beans are good. Red jellies better than any other kind of jelly. I want what's red. So I say, Dad, I want to try that. He's like, no, you don't try that. That's actually really hot sauce. It'll burn your mouth. You're lying to me. <laughs> like, you're holding out on me. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I'm like, this is what Adam and Eve felt like. Like, you're holding out on me, God. <laughs> so I'm like, this isn't true. He's like, no. I'm like, yes. So we're literally like pulling this Tabasco sauce. I mean, I remember this, and I was young. No, yes, no, yes. Well, my dad gets going. He's a socialite. He starts talking, and I grab that Tabasco sauce, yank it off, boom, and I literally, like this, boom, and then it's like Macaulay Culkin and Home Alone if you're old enough. <laughs> ah! Right? Like I'm screaming. Everybody's like, be quiet. Why are you screaming? My dad's like, you're a flipping idiot. <laughs> right? <laughs> I told you. And my mom's like, Mark, he's hurting. And he's like, good. I'm glad he's hurting. <laughs> well, at the time that that happens, I mean, I think about this and I go, the motivation of me as a dad for Lucy to encounter the sweetness of a dessert and therefore I said, in my words, leave room. And the same words that my father said, don't, are the same motive. Dads love their kids. I don't want you to destroy not just your mouth, but that night my gut is killing me as a kid. Like, why does it burn so bad? My mom's like, honey, it's okay. My dad's like, because you drank what I told you not to, you fool, Right? So in the end, when Solomon begins to apply this and God's like, I told you not to, and therefore, boom, 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 all of these terrible things happen. What it brings to our recognition is this. Sin is always a disregard and a dismissal of God's word. Very simple. Sin at its core is a believing a lie that leads us to dismiss and disregard God's word. The moment Solomon goes, you know what? I can build this platform, our power and protection really wisely. And he begins to dismiss, then disregard, and ultimately totally disobey God's word. Sin. He disregards that God's word is perfect, pure, and powerful. Like Paul says about sin in the book of Romans, that claiming to be wise, we become fools. So it isn't that Solomon just went, you know what, I'm going to decide to disregard God's word. But the cosmic realities of sin, the societal realities of sin, and his own wisdom that led to foolishness, leads him there. And this is happening all over our world with people who claim to be Christians. They begin to say, well, if I got really smart, we could build our platform in certain ways. We could protect ourselves in other ways. And then they think they're doing the Lord's work, just like Solomon did. 
And this is why in redemption we have a cultural statement that says, do the Lord's work the Lord's way. We got it from a guy named Francis Schaeffer. And what that means is what you do is every bit as significant as what you say you're trying to do. Ends don't justify means. The actions show obedience, not the words. He was worshiping God in the temple and disobeying him with his life. Those must be congruent. Obedience is doing what God tells us to do. And understanding the why behind it is his good, is his glory and our good. It is for our good. Do the Lord's work the Lord's way. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves from the life of Solomon. Are we trusting God's word? So right now when you're sitting in here and listening to all of this, that sin is always a disregard and dismissal of God's word. If we begin to take internal inventory, the question has to be presented to us. And it's being presented to us by God. And I believe it's bubbling up within you right now. Where are you dismissing and disregarding God's word? There are people in here who lead organizations and lead businesses. And deep down you go, the word of God really isn't that practical. It really doesn't help me lead my business. But you'll proclaim that Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, that seems to mean he knows about leadership. Are you dismissing and disregarding the wisdom God could be offering you? Or you begin to go, in my relationships, God doesn't fully understand, and you question the goodness of God and what is clear about relationships what's clear about what orders relationship rightly that leads to what we call morality. You go, eh, I mean, I get it, but it's not that practical. God, I don't know if God really knows what I feel. Here's what I want you to understand. God is a good father who's more committed to your joy and goodness than you are. Trust him. Believe him. Recognize that sin is a lie it's incredibly destructive. It leads to darkness and ultimately to death. Are we trusting God's word? Because God's word is reality. I want to read you just a quote that helps get an image I've been bringing across. It's by an old Presbyterian pastor named H.H. H. Farmer. I'm sure his name wasn't H.H., H., but that's what everybody says it is. And he says this specifically he says, when you go against the grain of the universe, you get splinters. When you go against the grain of the universe, which is God and his word, you get splinters. Well, that's exactly what happens to Solomon. So if you chart the rest of the, the book, all of these splinters emerge because he disobeyed God's word. So now adversaries come from outside. There's external adversaries that begin to play out in chapter 11. People who'd been put at bay through David, his father's obedience, enemy nations now rise up. Now imagine this, just let me play this out. So now enemy nations who they were at peace with weren't creating problems now emerge. Then inside, there's this guy Jeroboam inside the nation of Israel whom Solomon appointed and liked, he begins to rise up in rebellion against him and ultimately even down to his son, Rehoboam. And all of this leads to this massive fracturing of the whole nation of Israel. So what Solomon thought, I'm going to build protection. I'm going to build a platform. I'm going to elevate the power 
of the nation of Israel. Because of his disobedience to God's word, the exact opposite happened. I like to communicate this about sin, which again is the disobedience to God's word, is that sin doesn't just overpromise and underdeliver. It overpromises and counterdelivers. It does the opposite of what it's promising you. Now let's recognize something about sin that the author of the book of Hebrews says. He says about Moses that Moses forsook the passing pleasures of sin and looked forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. But what that means is there is a pleasure in sin. I won't make you say amen, but you're like, you're dang right there, right? Like many of those things, there is a pleasure in sin, but it's a passing pleasure of sin. And in this passing, it doesn't just fade away. It counter delivers a blow that cascades. Tom Schrader, the founding pastor of this church, used to use this quote when he taught from the book of Jonah in the Bible. And it says this, which totally communicates the reality of what happened to Solomon. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. There is no way Solomon thought, you know what, in all of my strategy, you know what I'm going to choose to have happen? I'm going to go way further than I intended. Like the way I didn't want. And, I, and it's going to just stick me there. Like a mouse's feet in a mouse trap. And then it's going to cost me way more than I want to pay. He never thought that. You don't ever think that about your sin. You give in to the passing pleasure of it, the immediate pleasure of it. You buy into the lie that it's going to deliver for you. And then you go, oh my gosh, that was an overpromise. And then it's like, what bam! And it knocks you out, and you're like, oh, what? Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Solomon's sin led to generational sin. Solomon's sin led to the complete fracture of the nation of Israel. God says, okay, you didn't obey my word. This kingdom watch is going to be stripped from you. People are going to rise up against you. It leads to the exact opposite of what he wanted. Why? Like, what did he do wrong? He didn't listen to God. God's God. God's good. His word is good. And he says to us, obey, not because he's some narcissistic, weird, domineering leader, but because he loves us. He loves his people. He loves the world that he's in. He knows the grain of reality. He knows what leads to flourishing. He knows what leads to life. He came to give us life and give it to the full. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Here's what that means. Sin always has a cascading effect. Well, I never intended this to affect my kids. I never meant it to affect my grandkids. I never meant it to lead us into this type of financial trouble. I never meant it to lead to this kind of division. That's what sin does. Lies believed and put into practice lead to destruction. So again, we have to take an internal inventory right now. In advance, some of you right now are right at the cusp of going, should I? 
in a situation that you know deep down is not what you should do. Some of us sitting in this room right now are withholding doing something we know that's the right thing to do. So some of you are about to do the thing you know you shouldn't do. Others of you are not doing the thing you should do. Evaluate the consequences of not doing that thing you should do. Not having that conversation you should have. Not evaluating your financial situation the way you should evaluate it. Not sitting down and having that conversation with your spouse or with your kids. Other issues are coming up for you. Do the thing you know you should do. And then those things that you're sitting there going, I know I shouldn't do this. Don't do it. And when you go, but it's so hard, you don't know the intensity, the angst, the anguish. Take it to God. Cast your cares upon me. Why, God says, because I care for you. I will lead you in a path out. So many of us, like Solomon, give in to the convenience of disobedience because we want to avoid the discomfort of obedience. And yet that discomfort leads to life. It leads to light. It brings about hope. Here's the last thing I want to say, because some of you right now are just sitting going, man, that moment, Tyler, you just talked about, about me sitting and making a bad decision, I already made it. That decision I didn't do, I'm already living in that reality. And my family's been affected. My surrounding neighbors have been affected. Like this consequence is what you just said about sin, taking me farther than I want to go. I am beyond it and I have no idea what to do. Here's what's amazing about God. God in the midst of our messes that we create always keeps coming for us. And here's what he's saying to us. A simple act of obedience is the way to create a tsunami of restoration. If right now you think like, how do I fix this huge mess? And you try to fix the whole mess. God's going, what's the simple act of obedience? Which right now could be as simple as you going, God help. That's prayer. And then through prayer, you get the conviction, have that conversation. You're like, yeah, but it's not going to do anything. Have the conversation. A simple act of obedience so oftentimes in the Bible, is what God gives us to open up a tsunami of restoration. Stories like this abound all over the place. From an addict who is so immersed in meth and whatever, and his first act of saying help led him to a liberated reality that now he helps hundreds of thousands of people. It opened up a tsunami of restoration in his own life, in his family, and beyond. Companies that have been cheating on their finances that finally go, you know what, we're just going to do it right because it's right, and they do it, all of a sudden get restored. This happens all the time, and God is constantly making this offer. He offers, when he says to Solomon, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your hand, he goes to Jeroboam, specifically in this passage, and he goes, hey, Jeroboam, this is at the end of chapter 11, if you just obey my word, all the blessings I offered to Israel and to you will be yours. Does Jeroboam do it? No but God's coming and offering. God doesn't just go, I'm done with these people. He comes after him. Jeroboam says no. Then he gives Rehoboam this amazing opportunity in chapter 12. And this is such a powerful passage in chapter 12. So now Rehoboam is 
Solomon's son, who would inherit the kingdom, the kingdom starting to fracture because of Solomon's sin, the divisions happening, tribes are separating, Jeroboam's leading the majority of the tribes of Israel, while God says, I'm going to retain a little bit. And they have this moment where Rehoboam gathers Jeroboam, who they'd be like the conflicting leaders, who gathers Jeroboam and all of these people together. And they come and Jeroboam and the people are exhausted. And they say, it's the beginning of chapter 12 of 1 Kings. They look at Rehoboam and they go, your father, verse 4 of chapter 12, put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. So this moment God brings to Rehoboam, this moment where all of the people are there. He can reunite Israel. These are the people that are separated from him going, your father put a really heavy yoke on us. Here's all they're pleading for. Be merciful to us. It's kind of like the kindness movement right now. Can we just treat people with kindness? And they go, if you just serve us, we'll serve you. So Solomon takes this moment and he goes, you know, I'm going to go talk to all the old buddies of my dad that were his advisors. These people now that are old, have a lot of gray hair. They're old. Rehoboam says to these people that are pleading with him, go away for three days, come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. Here's the wise words of wise sages, which is God's word. This is what they say to him. If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they'll always be your servants. This is biblical leadership. Serve. Set the table for the people. Be merciful to them like a good father. When they're pleading for mercy, give them mercy. Serve them. And if you serve them, you'll unite the kingdom and they'll serve you forever. But Rehoboam, verse 8, rejected the advice of the elders. Rejected the word of God. Went to his buddies, the passage says, and they're like, crush them! They don't work hard enough. They're lazy. You're going to make entitled people. He goes, okay. He crushes them. Kingdom divides. Separates. Generational sin goes on in the midst of it. And then again, now in the division, Rehoboam's like, we're going to go to war. He gathers all his people. He's like, we're going to go to war. Who comes after him again? God. This is what God says, verse 24. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up and fight against your brothers. Now, that's a word to Rehoboam at this moment, but I think it's a word to families right now. Don't fight your family. Don't fight your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing. And then there's this amazing phrase, so they obeyed. Simple act of obedience, just don't go fight. So if you're in this family and you're like, man, all this stuff's happening and you're convinced, like they need to know they're wrong, they need to know how much, and everything in you wants to start a fight, maybe take the advice of the elders and serve. Maybe believe the reality that it's God's kindness, the Apostle Paul says, that leads us to repentance. Maybe extend the ear. Maybe extend your time in situations that you don't want and serve and believe at the core that there's something of the advice of those elders that's congruent with the current and word of God, which is this mercy, grace, 
God keeps coming to us always in grace. So when you're under the ash heap of your own sin and you feel the guilt, God's coming to you. God himself is applying the wisdom of the elders, saying, I'm serving you. I shed my blood for your sin. My kindness, my love is what's warm and welcoming to you. Trust me. Rest in me. Light, liberation, salvation is found there. I want to end with this passage in Isaiah that is such a powerful passage, speaking at a different time to the same nation of Israel. And God says this, this is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance, believing God's word, turning from lies. God and sin are opposite directions. You don't have to figure out like, how do I say no to all this? Just turn to God and go, God help, and keep taking steps towards him. That's repentance. In repentance and rest, be still and know that I'm God. Chuck your own wisdom and believe the Apostle Paul's language that the weakness of God is stronger than human strength and the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. Rest. Be still and know that I am God. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. That's like, oh. So what does that passage mean to us? What the Spirit wants us to do is bubble up and go, God, we want all of it. We want repentance, we want rest, we want quietness and trust because our ultimate desire is salvation and strength. So here's what I want us to do as we end. Stand with me right now. This is going to be our benediction. This is the end. And we're going to read this verse together. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But we're not going to read the back the the part of but you would have none of it. So what we're going to do in replace of but you would have none of it is Three times, God give us all of it, God give us all of it, God give us all of it. Now, I know some of you aren't listening, so here's what we're going to do. <laughs> in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Pause. That's God's word to us, okay? We're not saying that. That's God saying that to us. We pause, and then we're going to go, God give us all of it, God give us all of it, God give us all of it. Got it? All right, let's do it together and do it loud. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. God give us all of it. God give us all of it. God give us all of it. God speak to us. Give us your power. Show us the perfection, the purity, and the power of your word. And God let us be not the just hearers of the word, but doers. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys have a great weekend.